Hello and welcome to Planet Critical, a podcast for a world in crisis. My name is Rachel Donald. I'm an investigative journalist and your host. Every week I interview experts who are battling to save our planet. My guests are economists, scientists, politicians, academics and activists. They explain the complexities of the energy, economic and ecological crises that we face and they reveal their solutions to mitigate the damage to our future and the world. This is a critical time for our planet. It demands critical thinking. Go to planetcritical.com to learn more and subscribe. My guest this week is Jesse Henshaw. Jesse is a physicist and an architect and a systems design thinker. That means that she spent her life dedicated to understanding how natural systems work. And of course, like anyone in her field, she is extremely concerned about where the world is going, really. Uh, Jessie worked with the UN to rectify their sustainability development goals and explains uh, why they were false to begin with. Essentially, she's trying to understand how the crisis has been designed and the contradictions which may hold the key to getting through it. This is a pretty wide-ranging and even metaphorical conversation. Uh, I really enjoy how Jesse perceives things, looking at the nuance of a situation and essentially revealing how multiple things can be true at the same time and how we need to expand our imaginations in order to best deal with the multiple situations that we face and, and how they interlock. So I hope you enjoy the episode. If you do, share it far and wide. If you love it, though, please do consider getting a paid subscription at planetcritical.com to support the podcast. You can also support Planet Critical on Patreon. And the transcripts of each interview are available to both paid subscribers on planetcritical.com and on the Patreon page. Thank you to everyone who is already supporting the project. I'm so happy to finally have you on the show. I feel like I already know you a little bit because we go back and forth on Twitter so much. Yeah, well, so nice to meet you. So nice to meet you too. Thank you for making the time for Planet Critical. I, and I'm sure the listeners, really, really appreciate this. I'm observing that there's an awful lot going on mm -hmm. uh, in the world, a lot of changes, uh, pro and con, and that maybe people are beginning to open up to the crisis as it becomes more clear. I don't know. I've been looking for a, a kind of look up moment mm -hmm. uh, as opposed to a don't look up moment mm -hmm. uh, for some time. I I thought it would come in 2020, the year of clear vision, but that didn't happen, but it's coming. What do you mean 2020 was the year of clear vision? Well, 2020 is the measure of optical clarity, 2020 vision. Oh, right. Okay. Sorry. <laughs> of course. <laughs> sorry, that was obvious. <laughs> right. Well, nothing's very obvious uh, until you look at it from a couple sides. Mm. But I'm hoping that we'll be starting to be able to look at the problem through our common aspirations rather than our criticisms. Mm. Uh, and that should, should facilitate. My experience began in the 60s, 1960s, uh, when lots of people were beginning to notice that the developed world's way of, of life depended on blindly destroying the earth and resulting societal dysfunction, I developed a, a current list of things like how complication, overload, and congestion make our systems inflexible and, and unresponsive, and how growth in the opposite direction requires all of us to change faster and faster. These kinds of physiological contradictions in the system um, that it's a kind of physics catalog of them 
that I developed called uh, the Top 100 World Crises Growing with Growth. Mm-hmm. Uh, if you just Google that, it's a long list and, and pretty complicated, but you you get the sense pretty quickly that, that something is <laughs> most definitely going wrong. Hmm. And uh, so science is, is absolutely a, a key tool for responding to it. My view is also that the primary cause of the problem is how science and economics analyze their formulas taken out of context, as if they didn't have environments. So mm-hmm. their research does not include what is connected to the, the common motive behind their work, which is to increase our power over nature. Mm. So it, it, it causes us to be steering blind. Um, and it also keeps us from studying how uh, natural compound growth, or natural growth uh, of new systems is the start of an environmental process that can be very successful. Natural growth pr- produces all kinds of perfected designs that last for long times. And uh, our lives being one, of course, uh, our bodies did it. Uh, doing the explosive growth part in the womb, organizations do it, um, as well as new popular bands and, and music styles. They go through a, an explosive growth process and then they last for some long time. Um, like jazz, for example, it just mm. has this wonderful history of exploding at first and then, and then going through all kinds of interesting changes still. Can we just pause there? Because I think that's such an, an interesting thought. The idea that our obsession with economic growth or with GDP would actually impinge on other natural growth systems and therefore kind of, I don't know, limit the, the natural evolution of other systems? Well, it, it disrupts their worlds. Just imagine something a little political, um, mm-hmm. how uh, growth has motivated uh, countries like the U.S., Australia, and Canada to try to erase the indigenous mm-hmm. cultures. Yeah. Growth wants to have a uh, access to all the resources uh, mm-hmm. in its way. But I, I, I'm really more speaking of, of how uh, growth is a, a very successful strategy for building long-term systems if you do it right. And if we learn how to do it right, we might soften the crisis coming for the world community. Learn how to do growth right. But wouldn't that necessitate then not endless exponential growth, but cyclical, as you said. Oh, yes. The trick that nature does so casually in many circumstances and that, that we find it very implausible <laughs> is uh, it's an ABC kind of process that you start with innovation, and then you shift to maturation, and then you have a long life. Mm. So... It's that maturation process where you take the the resources being put into growth, into expansion, and instead put them into perfecting the system and fitting it to its new world. Because growth does many things, but you know, importantly, it's an 
to internal explosion of extraction of resources from its surroundings, and then it needs to switch to living in the in the world, to adapting to the world, and it's mm. and, and nature's process is triggered by what we call birth, the shift from exponential growth to asymptotic growth or maturation as the new life gets more and more used to the world it's going to live in. And our intellectual development has blocked our thinking about that. As I mentioned with how science takes all its form, science and economics take all their formulas out of context or largely do. Some of the interesting connections I've I've had just this this week are with Trabian Shorter's uh, Black Lives Matter uh, cultural healer, who uh, makes a really nice case of he calls it asset framing of of how to focus on people's assets rather than their disabilities as mm -hmm. a way to characterize them and and creating openings in the cultural transformations that we need to make. Mm -hmm. And uh, he's not so much for, focused on the global issue, but it's a very good, very good perception. And then there's a wonderful article, new article by some uh, uh, leading climate scientists called Scientists Warning on Affluence that uh, finally, after years and years of trying to probe the, the climate science community shows that the leading thinkers are beginning to realize that growth is the cause of climate change mm. because it multiplies businesses using fossil fuels. That's the purpose of growth. Mm. Um, we actually designed our sustainability strategies to perpetuate the cause of unsustainability. Let's get into that. <laughs> yeah. Well, but it's one of the kinds of ironies that are worth probing, you know, mm. where it helps you look at the environment of things going completely haywire. And the, the place where that really happened, uh, or one of the places where that really happened, is, is in the interpretation of the Brundtland Committee uh, report on sustainability in 87, I think it was, mm. B-R-U-N-D-T. L-A-N-D, which defines sustainability as, as living well in the present, not uh, harming the future. And okay. the, way, the way the Organization of Economic Development uh, Countries, OEDC, interpreted it was that money is not the cause. <laughs> Money's to be held harmless. We're to blame the, the resource uses of businesses that, that they control right. and ignore who pays for them to right. use them. Right. So it, it, it completely detaches sustainability from, from, from growth. And, the, and oh, the, I see. I've talked endlessly to, to other sustainability activists and at the UN, and I spent a good time good bit of time at the UN in the writing of the SDGs, the Sustainability Development Goals. And uh, I learned an enormous amount about how, how uh, activist groups compete with each other over their, their values and don't look at any systems. Mm. Why do you think that is? I guess it's because 
that's how, what how they organize, how they attract adherents is is by uh, leading the charge uh, towards certain values. Mm. The whole our whole culture suffers from a, a lack of understanding of natural systems and how they work. And there's an exception, and that's that there, there's there's another one of these ironies is these um, contradictions between how life makes so much sense at home and at the office where people have direct nonverbal connection between their relationships and are sensitive to, to their environments and uh, the, the public sphere where we, we run the world by remote control in a way by these mm. formulas that we developed disconnected from nature and uh, mm. that pattern actually goes goes all the way back to the dawn of science the dawn of science took pride in squashing uh, what they called natural religion which was actually uh, a science of home culture mm. that lasted 2000 years before was highly developed was the actually the source of greek uh, architecture and and democracy, mm -hmm. but the scientists uh, were so thrilled with their use of mathematics to make a killing in things like the olive market that they everybody went for this this abstract view of nature uh, mm -hmm. as something to control with with rules. I wonder as well if what you're saying about people having a relationship to their their workplace and their home environment. And right. yet the public sphere is sort of remote controlled, which I think is just such a fantastic image. I wonder as well what the um, desecration of the commons did to that as well. Because right now, I think what we're seeing is all these sort of opposition, well, not right now, forever oppositional binaries, um, which is why in the first 30 seconds, what you were saying about, you know, there can be good growth and cyclical growth, because right now it's growth versus degrowth. And another thing is, you know, private property, people saying private property is a terrible thing. Everything needs to be sort of communal. And yet perhaps there is an element of like ownership or responsibility in property that is commons. It cannot just be commons. It has to have that unique sense of belonging to um, and being a part of a community. I wonder if that desecration of the commons as well has kind of fed into it raises a lot of questions i think that you know where i've gone with it is is to see that it's our failure to study how natural systems work that has has caused everybody to drift into their uh, separate silos of of uh, communication uh, mm. our human cultures have a hugely important role in our lives most people don't notice but our our cultures are really the only possible location where all our ways of understanding and working with the world uh, are stored. And they have marvelous ancient roots and traditions that are sustained over huge long periods of time. So they, they have a, a special design for maintaining the integrity of the culture. That's what That's what's going on when you you learn the culture from your your parents, that the root ideas and, and principles, the, the ways people respond to each other and respond to the world, and, and then you build on it in collaboration with others around you, all refining their, their way of expressing the common culture. 
every every member of a culture has its own copy, uh, its own authenticated copy, coming from their parents who got their authenticated copy from their parents. And so the, this large distribution of, of authenticated copies of the culture, that I think, is is in effect a blockchain mm. uh, to assure that the culture can't change unless it changes as a whole, that no mm-hmm. individual can change the culture. If the culture is a unified object of, of the w- ways of life shared by all its members. That said, we've been multiplying cultures that, that disagree about everything. <laughs> and science has never studied this kind of thing. It's part of the problem that, that we have reduced, we've been trained to reduce nature to numbers Mm -hmm. and nature is really organization and you can't reduce organization to a number. That's, that's what I'm trying to help change. And I'm I'm running, I'm endlessly run into resistance. Mm -hmm. Um, So you think it's, it's going to demand a cultural shift up the blockchain then in order to tackle the crisis? Well, I, I think that the, the kind of extreme example uh, of how nature solves that problem, mm. because other systems in nature are designed around kinds of blockchains, like our own bodies, where mm-hmm. uh, every cell has a copy of the whole mm-hmm. um, and uh, relates to other cells in in relation to their role in the whole. That's the organization of, of biology at work. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, and for biology, the, the solution that nature finally resolved to shift the whole from multiplying its parts to, to coordinating them and fitting them in with their environments, uh, we call birth, where, mm-hmm. where I, I, exhausting the capacities of the womb, um, you get thrown out to see if you can take care of yourself mm-hmm. uh, with a little help. So for us, if we, if we, if we collapse the environment, uh, there's nobody here to take care of us. Mm-hmm. Uh, if, if that's our way of initiating our birth into the real world, it might change our perceptions, in a sense, be good, but uh, we we would left with be left without any capacities. So I uh, my my hope is that. Uh, some of this uh, kind of thinking of what we're going to give birth to as we end our exponential growth, it will uh, inspire people and and allow their aspirations to change the system as a whole. So would you say the kind of growth that we are in um, due to, well, let's call it capitalism? Uh-huh. Would you say that then that is sort of constantly stuck at the at the birth stage, at the innovation stage? Yes, absolutely. We we knock down barriers to growth all the time. We've been doing it again and again. One of the longest debates in economics is whether um, innovation is is destructive creation or creative destruction. <laughs> um, the reality is that with the natural limits of the earth that it becomes more and more of the, the former, the destructive creation. Uh, it's a it's a somewhat of a sliding scale. 
destruction of the earth doubles every 30 years approximately. Mm -hmm. In the last 30 years, uh, the destruction of the earth in that period equaled the entire destruction of the earth preceding it. Yeah. You know, all the time of the growth system preceding it because it's, it's successive doubling means that in each doubling period, the system is expanding as much as it expanded throughout its whole past history. Yeah. So that is a argument by metaphor, you could call it, but it's also a, a real pattern that is inherent in, in compound growth. Mm-hmm. I was wondering if, if maybe it would be uh, good to talk about where all this came from in my work. Definitely. A bit of it came from retracing the early history of science, as I mentioned, the Great Connection. I, I grew up in a small college town in New York State and was taught from an early age to look for natural patterns, a favorite thing to do with my dad, uh, a physics professor. And that produced a quite unusual approach, eventually, to, to science. Uh, unbeknownst to my dad, he, he got <laughs> upset about it later. But my, my delight was in noticing missing information, where I'd see a pattern that, that I couldn't understand because something was missing. And uh, that came out in first semester freshman physics. We were doing a lab using a a strobe light to photograph and digitize the path of a ball thrown in the air, a beautifully smooth parabola in the image, and then to measure that and calculate the formula. While, While standing around, I made a little joke asking, what about the tossing and catching? Those were, of course, not in the picture. Uh, Little did I know at that time, but I'd really stepped in it. Uh, What makes life lively are just those bursts of energy that develop by unseen means to begin all kinds of singular events. Even today, physics does not study how those spontaneous energy-concentrating behaviors, like the tossing that comes about as a as a cascade of, of muscular contraction that you can follow somewhat in your own body, but you, you lose track of where it really began. So the problem is with it, that it's an organizational process in the environment, and so there's no data. So science finds it hard to study, would, would find it hard to study in any event. Some scientists like Robert Rosen and Alan Turing have famously tried. However, those and others generally return to simplifying environmental systems to, to statistics and totally missing their organization, uh, which is really what's happening. So as I began to think about it, I also noticed the natural shapes of nature, that of soft corners and edges of everything, the smooth gradations of change, how natural systems have many nested scales and layers of environmental relations. Those struck me as very different from abstract equations and their infinite precision taken out of context. Somehow, natural processes all seem to visibly start and stop smoothly, except 
Of course, for the ones we can't see, we can't tell how they start to stop. Uh, but the few that you can't see, they start smoothly. So math is quite unlike nature, however useful it is for making machines. But it implied that there was a whole real world that physics does not study. I noticed something was myth from physics. Mm. Well, this because this is the thing, I mean, your career is so fascinating. You've been redefining how physics approaches systems thinking, right? Right. And it's from this, this ob is it from this singular observation when you were younger? Well, the way growth systems emerge is from a singular connection or insight. The way a snowflake begins with a microscopic crystal on a on a mm. piece of dust mm -hmm. and and then something about that crystal sets a pattern mm. that then evolves as the snowflake grows either at the office or home when we try to build a complex system uh, mm. an office project or a, a dinner for 10 uh, uh, on a holiday mm. it, it goes through the stages of first a a an instigating image uh, an idea and then other things build on to that, that, mm -hmm. that evolve the idea over time and take it to a point where you have to cut any excess uh, tasks and focus on getting it on the table at the right time. And so refining the, the design and perfecting it, and it's in order to complete the design before it's released into the world. Mm -hmm. And that's what you do in business when you develop a new product, it's got to be right. By the time you release it, you can do all sorts of crazy things before, but it's got to be complete and, and perfect by the time you release it. The finishing steps of a, of a complex design are almost as important as the, that inspirational beginning. It's similar with a relationship that, that you have the, the inspirational beginning and then a few days or weeks later, you realize this, this is nothing or this <laughs> is nothing. And then that, that realization that there's something there to perfect or not takes hold and you change course. You stop, you know, simply amplifying the responses that you're getting, but living with the person that you met. It's a universal pattern that we, we deal with all the time. I previously mentioned as an ABC, but it's it's uh, the burst of creativity and and then the coordination with its world and and life of service after that uh, uh, or life of a role in the world. It makes me think of um, Nietzsche's concepts of Dionysus and Apollo, the Dionysian creative, passionate energy, and then the Apollon Apollonian structure and almost rigidity, and it's those two. It's it's the marriage of those two uh, energies that can kind of give life to that which lasts. I haven't heard that before, but it sounds like a part of it. The uh, Greek stories are, are, are full of, well, everybody's stories mm -hmm. are full of insight. Uh, the old stories that are told again and again and again, for some reason, it's because they contain a lot of insight of some sort. Sure. But I, I think what's so complicated about what we're now facing is that the it requires such a stretch of the imagination because we're going 
beyond the concept of of like oppositional binaries essentially constantly right like it the solutions the necessary solutions to combat the energy crisis the economic crisis the ecological crisis i mean they require such nuance and multiple things can be true at the same time things that we previously thought only one of which could exist and i think that's part of the problem like as the intellect ha- and as culture has grown um developed we've uh-huh. we've reached such a a place of complication that it we've almost created a situation that's beyond ourselves if that makes sense well yeah we have i wonder then what would um a society in its maturation or long life stage look like then how would you design that well look at the ones that have have matured the organizations uh that that grow and and sustain a, their culture for you know like the ngos that that famously have a a culture uh what is the um, uh doctors without borders mm-hmm. the, all the others but i i'm I'm not catching the thread of them at the moment, mm-hmm. but uh, I don't know. One of the strange examples that uh, I read a wonderful study of uh, a while ago was uh, of a Russian scientists perfecting the weaponization of smallpox. <laughs> they they just related to each other as if it was ordinary business. They just merrily went along, even though they were putting the planet in danger. Mm. Um, and, and this really happened. Is that an example of maturation? Well, yeah, that culture matured around a, a perverse understanding, like our, like capitalism mm-hmm. is a culture that matured around a personal perverse understanding. You know, these these are not things that we can can directly control. It's it's more possible to inspire, and one of my principles has always been that the growth systems and and cultural change are not things that you you resist, but things that you uh, guide, that you move them forward in the right direction rather than try to cause them to go in reverse as if they were a, a vehicle or something. But they're not vehicles, they're, they're evolution. And evolution doesn't go backward unless it gets rather disrupted. And then it's not backward at all, it's just disrupted future. Does that have to be going backwards? Can it can it not be a, a reorganization of the system? I'm thinking of degrowth scholarship. I, I'm familiar with degrowth and, and correspond with some of the the people in it, but I, I hadn't heard of that phrase. I think that's healthy, um, okay. similar to peer to peer or cultural and community and business relationships and mm-hmm. organizations. Uh, it's a new evolution of of a direction that neither of which is going to get anywhere until we relieve the pressure caused by putting all our money into investing and expanding the system's profits ever faster, Um, you know, extracting from the earth. So what we need to do is either collapse the system as soon as possible and and reset everybody's uh, everybody's, uh, rudders all at once, the way mm-hmm. birth does. Mm-hmm. I think that's how birth works, how it switches a system from exploding to to collaborating. Mm. Uh, 
uh, is that it switches all its switches at once, and they find that, that they're uh, trying to fit into the world rather than uh, take it over. You know, I see things like the the uh, the anti-vax communities uh, in Europe and America. That they, they don't seem to be elsewhere so much. But uh, mm. I, I'm wondering what it is that makes people suddenly group together to oppose one of the best services that civilization provides. And I think they're reacting to something definitely being wrong and and just connecting with each other on the belief that that they're opposing something wrong. And, and mm. it's, it, it's really with the system as a whole mm -hmm. that's, that's causing the dis disruptions and uh, dysfunctions uh, mm -hmm. all over the place uh, that are unfortunately still, still protecting the, the system is still protecting the people who manage it and have these delusionary uh, approaches. Can I just jump in there and give a really good example, actually, of what um, you're talking about? Uh, in Malaysia, the um, Penan tribe, they're one of the last nomadic um, tribes in the world. They were refusing the vaccine. And um, a lot of misinformation is spread through WhatsApp, um, especially by Western doctors, Western snake oil salesmen. Yeah, sure. yeah, yeah, yeah. But the, I, um, I covered this for Monga Bay and I spoke with some Penan people and they were saying, we don't trust the government. We have been abused and exploited for so, 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 so long. We're not right. saying we'll never get the vaccine, but just leave us alone. We're going to go into the forest where we can fend for ourselves. And it's exactly that. It was a symptom of how the system is broken. Uh, right. In Malaysia as well, the, um, the politicians and the elite were getting Pfizer while um, the rest of the population was getting Sinovac, the Chinese vaccine, which was much less effective. So... Uh -huh. It was very much symptomatic of the fact that the Penan felt intuitively and had seen for so many decades that the system was not built for them. It was built to take from them. And that's how part of their resistance came out saying, no, nope, we're not going to take the vaccines right now. Thank you, because it's not mandatory. Oh, that's very close to the stated rationale of the uh, American far right, that government is the problem. And uh, of course, government is partly the problem. It's mm. It, and the, all the scientists are promoting endless growth, but that's the general feeling and the actual problem are different. Yeah. Like the, the very popular financial protest movement, the Occupy Wall Street, mm -hmm. uh, uh, that was uh, promoted by some leading thinkers and, and was certainly energized uh, a large community, didn't understand that protest is not it's not what financial people listen to in making their decisions. It's it's how they make their decisions based on the numbers that steers the steers the world system, and uh, hmm. uh, the the basic mechanism of it is to use profits, which are then free to use for anything else, and put those profits into whatever is going to make more profit. Hmm. And that multiply that max that is what maximizes the growth rate, and uh, of of businesses producing profits for investors. And to change that, we we'd actually need some kind of a 
of an investor revolution, not not a, an attack on the the people carrying out the investors' instructions, uh, an investor revolution to to use people are familiar with tithing uh, for religious purposes. Well, call saving the earth a religious purpose, and and investors tithing their unearned income, you know the the profits mm. to uh, uh, invest in slowing growth and and caring for the damaged planet but they need they need an incentive which they don't have right now and that's why i was very excited in when was it january 21 uh-huh. when um the wall street bets sort of mass protest happened and those redditors uh people with very little capital like crashed the market oh, yeah. Remember that I I was so 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 excited. I was like, right, this is it. This is where we're seeing the kind of protest that meets these people in in their paradigm. Essentially, as you're saying, they these people bet against um what was it? I can't remember. Oh, about GameStop. That was it. Uh-huh. Yeah, they tried to tank the stock, um Wall Street, and everybody who had an emotional relationship with either that store or um, with the, the ideology behind it that the big man shouldn't get to win every time. I mean, A, people made a fortune, and B, they made capitalists lose a fortune in that week. Well, but they were the supreme capitalists of the moment, though. Yeah, 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 yeah. But not, yeah, sure. Well, but, they were. And they, yeah. They, you know, and that, this is what's happening with all the ups and downs in the stock market. All of, the, all of them are these attack strategies of capitalists attacking other capitalists, pumping the market, dumping it, uh, skimming. But they didn't dump these people. They didn't dump. Even when the price was going down, they held on. And that was what made all the capitalists lose a huge amount of money. It was very much a kind of vitriolic rebuttal of playing the game, it seemed. I mean, some people made cash, but most people went through you know, they made tens of thousands of dollars and then lost them by the end of the week because they'd refused right. to sell, which I just thought was beautiful. I guess I, I should read, reread uh, <laughs> up on that. But um, what would be uh, an equivalent that would uh, be contagious uh, for investors? Uh, I'm not sure. I call it fair money um, to have have money that it isn't uh, tainted uh, you need to spend enough of your profits on on saving the earth to begin to turn the ship. Well, I just I think until you decouple uh, money from politics, there's not going to be much incentive to do that. Well, also from livelihoods. Mm. I mean, I I have uh, savings that I'm relying on, and I'm I'm spending as much of of my unearned income as I can safely do, but um, everybody uh, is looking at a longer and longer uh, retirement mm. and needing more and more money to, to float them. Mm. And there are all sorts of these contradictions lying around. Mm. That's interesting. I want to ask you um, uh-huh. about these sustainability development goals. You found, because when you were working with the UN, right, you found that there was a problem with the standard sustainability metrics. What, how are they being measured and what's the issue? There are a variety. Um, and 
as the the implementation of the SDGs has progressed, the the people on the ground may have changed some of the the procedures uh, as they find what works. Mm-hmm. So, what I saw of the beginnings might might have have changed somewhat. But uh, one of the things that is still a glaring problem is the the SDGs are still a growth maximizing plan. Yeah. Uh, that's that's uh, SDG eight, um, and the idea was that uh, uh, the undeveloped countries would grow and everybody else would dial back, and uh, <laughs> and that would leave space for them. And of course, of course, they, they, there hasn't been. Yeah. In fact, how the economy works is that the the most competitive parts of the economy rob the the poorest. Mm. And that's that's how the undeveloped countries stay undeveloped. Um, mm. As as with any generality, there are exceptions, of course. But there's so many contradictory problems. Uh, you know, we have this mass migration uh, problem all over the world, partly because of the counterproductive effect that economics says that. Increasing competition creates jobs, and it mm. actually shrinks them uh, for the, the the people whose resources are taken. Yeah, and of course, then then there's the other side of this that I I, I should I shouldn't ignore, and that's that uh, the resources are worthless without the organization of the mm. people using them. So, you know, things like that uh, competitive disadvantage that that uh, the developed world creates for everyone else um, mm-hmm. wouldn't exist if the developed world wasn't really pretty ingenious in, in how it uses things. I want to ask you something. I haven't asked this question yet on the show. Oh. Because um, it's a big one. One of the arguments that I see most often against change and against achieving a homeostasis um, of planetary life in which ecosystems work together and human beings are part of that ecosystem. One of the the argument I see most frequently against that being a possibility is Uh that it's not in our nature. That human beings, um, life itself is incapable of limiting itself, of restraining itself, um and that human beings are like a or anything any living being on this planet is like a bacteria and given the right context it will just spread itself out over everything is that true well there are a lot of different versions of that myth myth okay i like where this is going (laughs) all right all i have to do is point to the fact that we we self-limit ourselves in all our relationships what do you mean you know, at the dinner table, we we don't take more than our share. Let's say there's one dish that's that's really popular, and hmm. uh, you know, we make sure everybody gets gets enough. Hmm. But the office, we, we we see somebody's having trouble, and we pitch in and help. Hmm. Similarly, on the street, you know, people people take action when there's a need to. Hmm. Um, so. Um, those are all 
homeostasis uh, function. So I think that one of the main reasons people are not aware of how lively homeostasis is, is because it's represented as a negative feedback and it forgets that the negative feedback is in response to positive feedback. You know, this is one of those odd things that people get blinded very quickly by, by theories that science is, is, has arrived at this conclusion that everything is breaking down, mm. that entropy is a constant force and that that's the driving force of change in, in the world. And well, things have to build up before they break down. Mm. And you see that all over the place. Plants grow before they die, you know, and songs begin before they end. And, mm -hmm. and in, the, in between, there's all sorts of lively stuff. Mm. And uh, so not appreciating life is, is what I, I'd see as, as the, uh, uh, maybe the root source of, of, of the idea that is sort of forgiving our, our greed and egotism, the, the maximum power principle that everything takes all it can all the time, and which is just not true. If you see how people live, if you see how things work, you know, maturing at, uh, at the end of college and heading off on your own, ready to deal with the world is not boring. Hmm. You know, it's, it's not a death sentence. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And I think, um, I'm, again, I, you know, I've not studied natural systems, but, um, I've been led to believe there's also examples of this in natural systems, in plant ecosystems and animal ecosystems, that um, there is a capacity, if you're looking at life with a capital L, um, and whether it's the natural balance of, of things which leads to it, um, but <laughs> what was that that somebody said uh, on the show? Um, I mean, life is a miracle because it tends towards self-organization. Well, it's, it's, uh, yeah, I've been mentioning examples of, of that, mm. the self-organization of, of, uh, of our cultures as they, they meet new conditions and mm. have to, uh, share information on how to respond to them, uh, in, in keeping with the prior culture, but adapting to the new world and, and cultures, you know, do that all the time. And, and, and if you look around. You see eruptive change in cultures too. The the uh, how the '60s culture uh, created this uh, tremendous explosion of cultural change that some small parts of lingered on for quite a while and are still with us. The 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 cultural equality uh, movements, you know, the LGBT, the 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 really pushing the Black Lives Matter, mm. the all these principles of of uh, uh, holistic uh, design that uh, are being picked on one at a time by the general community of mm -hmm. of interest in going that direction, and uh, it, you know that has certainly upset the the people who are already upset. Um, the, the the religious right was very upset with. <laughs> and that I think motivated a lot of the 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 imaginative reinventing of politics that the Republicans did in the U.S. for 
you know, the last 40 years, mm. but um, uh, all these things are in the mix. And, and the, and the question is, you know, where are we going? Um, as a group, we're, we're seeming to, to be inventing more and more problems. Um, and when, when are we going to reverse that? Uh, it will reverse one way or another. Um, will it be inspiration or exasperation? I don't know. <laughs> TBC to be confirmed. <laughs> Jesse, what uh, a great funny note <laughs> to end on. <laughs> Thank you very much for your time uh, and for all the work that you're doing. Uh, where can people find out more or or read some of your work? Well, the simplest way is to go to my homepage, which is Jesse Henshaw dot com j-e-s-s-i-e-h-e-n-s-h-a-w and that's a that's a placeholder for a, a new website of mine um uh, with a bunch of links at the top and at the bottom and a story in the middle i'll put links to it on uh, planetcritical.com so people can can find you and and read okay. all about it um my final question of course is who would you like to platform well i uh I uh, thought of three people. Um, is that okay? Absolutely. Uh, okay. Well, Nora Bateson is one, the daughter of, of uh, Gregory Bateson, uh, who has a, some wonderful insights. And uh, Michael Bowen, uh, who is the maestro of uh, the P2P movement, uh, has wonderful insights. And, and also... David Snowden, um, who's a um, a more traditionally educated physicist who switched from trying to model complex systems to helping people respond to them. Mm, interesting. Yeah. So three great people. Thank you very much. Jesse, thank you so much for your time. Thank you so much. If you want to learn more about Jessie's work, I've put links to her website over at planetcritical.com where you can subscribe to support this podcast. If you liked the episode, please leave a review and share it far and wide. If you loved it, the best way to support the project is by choosing a paid subscription at planetcritical.com or on the Planet Critical Patreon page where interview transcripts are available for paid subscribers and patrons. A big thank you to the Planet Critical supporters who allow me to invest my time every week in this work. Thank you all for listening. See you next week.